presence of God. If we don't have each other here, we don't have what we need. We invite you to stand with us this morning as we sing together.
such good theology, reminding us that from the beginning there was a plan, and it was a plan to seek you, to seek you, to seek you, to seek me, that God had a plan to reconcile us back to himself from the very beginning. Welcome to Evangel this morning. You at home, we welcome you as well. Today is the second part of our Advent, the second Advent service, focusing on peace. So we'll invite you to have a seat. We ask that Zach and Caleb come up and prepare themselves for the reading while we sing, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The second candle of Advent is the candle of peace. It is sometimes called the, the Bethlehem candle to remind us of the place in which preparations were made to receive and cradle the Christ child. Peace is a gift that we must be prepared for. God gives us this gift of peace when we turn to him in faith. The prophet Isaiah calls Christ the Prince of Peace. Through John the Baptist and all the other prophets, God asks us to prepare our hearts so that he may come in. Our hope is in God, and in his Son, Jesus Christ. Our peace is found in him. We light this candle today to remind us that he brings peace to all who trust in him. Would you stand and sing with us? 
Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Take a moment, say hi to someone around you before you're seated this morning, and then I have some things to share with you. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, thank you for uh, your patience, uh, both here. Welcome those of you who are here. Welcome those of you who are watching from home or elsewhere. Um, thank you for your patience, and thank you for uh, all of you who were able to get us up and running. I mean, what, what are the chances that you'll have a neighborhood high, uh, you know, electrical glitch just momentarily long enough to knock everything out just before you're ready to start the service. Pretty good chance, apparently. So, uh, so thank you for all your patience. We're good, and uh, we're carrying on. Want to thank you for those of you who brought donations into these for the Kerr Street Market this morning. Uh, just to let you know that today is the only day that we are collecting. If you want to drop something directly at the market at some point in the future at the Kerr Street Mission, you certainly are welcome to do that. But uh, we are collecting today, and we'll make sure that gets delivered to them uh, as of this week so they can start handing that out. Just want to remind you of a couple things that are upcoming in the Christmas season. Just to remind you that Christmas Eve, we'll be doing our carols at candlelight, uh, by candlelight at 6.30 p.m., and uh, that will focus on the carols and the readings. And then once that is done, we are doing our nativity, our living nativity. The animals will be here. We'll be doing that outside. And uh, you do have to register. Some of you have done that already. And uh, I just want you to know that right as of right now, there are only around 60 spaces remaining. So uh, if you haven't registered yet and you intend to, I would suggest that you move on that because um, uh, I believe those are going to fill up quickly. So just keep that in mind. Also a reminder that on Sunday, December the 26th, our service will be online only. We will not be here in the building on Sunday, December the 26th, and then we'll be back in on uh, Sunday, January the 2nd, picking up our normal routine. Just want to remind you as well, this is a time of year, our year end, of course, is December 31st. Also, for those of you who want to make sure you get contributions in for the 2021 tax uh, returns, just to let you know that December 19th, in light of the fact that we are not meeting together on the 26th, will be our last in-person offering. Uh, you can still mail it or drop it off, and, uh, or e-transfer is good right up until uh, December 31st, so if you do it that way, uh, you're, you're, you're good. But if you want to physically hand it in, December 19th is our last Sunday. If you're dropping it off on the, in the office, just note that Wednesday, December 22nd is the last office day before Christmas, so you will need to have it there before then as well so it can be included uh, in the count. So those are just a few things that are a part of this busy December season, so please keep those things in mind. Kids, JK to grade five, you are free to head out your leaders and uh, enjoy your morning together. Thank you. I hand it back to Carlene to continue to lead us this morning. We're going to ask you to stand and join us again as we sing. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy peace.
Bring 
of the bride this morning we pray that the lamb that was slain would receive the reward of his suffering in our adoration and in our praise Amen and Amen Our scripture reading this morning is found in Matthew chapter 1, and we're reading verses 18 to 21. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Carlene and worship team for leading us so beautifully this morning. This being the second Sunday of Advent, the theme today is peace. Now, peace is a central theme of Christmas. We find it in our songs and in our writings and the poetry and in our language. Peace is a central theme to Christmas. Yet, truthfully, in our culture, Christmas can be anything but peaceful. It can be stressful. It can be chaotic. It can be busy. And so studies show that more heart attacks occur in the month of December than in any other 
month. Now, some of this is due to the increased intake of salt and fat in our diets. Some is due to increased alcohol consumption. Some is due to a colder weather and perhaps shoveling of snow. But of all of those things, the number one contributor that is identified as, as, as the primary contributor to a uh, heart attack in the month of December is stress, is stress. There's increased financial stress for all the gifts that we feel we have to purchase and the financial strain that that puts on us. The stress of travel, the stress of entertain, you know, the financial stress of entertaining, the financial stress of, of decorating and so on. There's the increase in relational stress as people are forced to spend time with relatives that they don't want to be with. And so that's stressful. Demanding schedules and events add to our stress. And so the point is, Christmas can be a very stressful time. Now, I would like to suggest today, as we consider our scripture, that Christmas has always been stressful. And that, you know, we, we like to create this idea of, of, of peace. We like to create this idea, uh, you know, as the way in a manger presents for us, of, of lowing cattle and a, and a peaceful baby sleeping and Mary who is pondering and then this sudden interruption of a drum solo from the little drummer boy uh, once she just finally got him to sleep. I mean, that's, that's the idea sometimes we paint of the Christmas season. But the truth is, the birth of Jesus took place in the context of stress and chaos and disappointment. And so this being the second Sunday of Advent and focusing on peace, today we're going to consider the angel's appearance to Joseph in a dream. And because of Mary's pregnancy and perceived unfaithfulness, Joseph had made the decision that he was going to divorce her. And so today we are going to be reminded that even though our stressful circumstances plunge us into disappointment and despair, we find peace when we are reminded that God is in control. So let's walk our way through this story, this portion of the Christmas story as we find it in scripture this morning. It starts with disappointment. Matthew's account, last week we looked at Luke's account, Matthew's account of the Christmas story opens with telling us, in his words, how it came about. We're immediately introduced to Mary and to Joseph, but we're also introduced to the complexity of their relationship. They, we're told that they're engaged, but, <laughs> that word is in there, it says, but Mary is pregnant, the complexity of their relationship. Mary and Joseph were engaged to be married. And as we mentioned last week, engagement in biblical times was different than it is now. To fully understand the implications of this, we need to understand the customs of the day. We need to visit their world and their time to understand that. In this time, parents would often choose the wife for their son because well, she was becoming a part of their family, of their clan. And so it was important that they choose someone who would fit in with, with the mother, with any other daughter-in-laws, and the family as a whole. That was 
fit was really important. Sometimes the son would provide input, but the final decision in this culture belonged to the parents. In this culture at this time, people married young. The minimum legal age for a male was 13, and the minimum legal age for a female was 12. A dowry was provided to the father of, of the bride equal to the loss of a worker because in his daughter going to another family and marrying off, he would be losing a worker. Now, sometimes services could be exchanged for money, and we see that in the Old Testament in the story of Jacob, where he works as a dowry to earn the right to marry Rachel. After the engagement was reached, the couple would actually be declared married at that point. They were declared engaged, but it was a lot like a marriage. During the engagement, the, they, they weren't living together, but the groom would be preparing a place for them to live in, and often building onto his family home additional rooms, preparing them for, uh, to bring his bride to, to come there to live with them as, him as a married couple in an extension of his father's house. And in this time, the, the, you know, the bride, which she was preparing in those days to learn how to look for after the household. They were referred to as husband and wife, even though the marriage had not yet been consummated. The marriage was legally blinding and, uh, binding, and it could be broken only by death and, or divorce, and we mentioned that last week. On the wedding day, the groom and his friends would go to the bride's home. They would be dressed in their finest clothes to get the bride, and she would then be brought to the prepared home, and the marriage would be official with celebration. Now, I don't know if you're thinking as I'm saying some of this, but Jesus uses a lot of this analogy to describe what the time will be like when he returns, right? The bridegroom comes to the house to get the bride dressed in his finest linens. And, uh, you know, in my father's house, there are many rooms. I go there to prepare a place for you, right? He's using all of this cultural image, imagery to help them understand because they understood how marriages worked in this time. And so in this particular situation, though, there's a problem. Mary was pregnant as a result of a miracle of God. She had been chosen, as we looked at last week, to be the mother of the Messiah. Now, obviously, when Joseph found out that she was pregnant, I mean, his whole world would have crumbled because his automatic assumption would be that she had committed adultery, that she was unfaithful. It appeared to him that she'd broken her vows. She had betrayed him. She humiliated him. She disappointed him. He trusted her. And now all of the work that he'd been doing, the plans that he'd been making, the dreams that he had for their future together, well, all of this was broken. And it was broken by the very person, in his opinion, that he had committed to and loved the most. It was her fault. It didn't matter that she really didn't break the vows. We need to see this from Joseph's perspective. We know the whole story, but... But he doesn't, and so as far as, as he is concerned, she was unfaithful, and the betrayal that he was experiencing was very real for him, and he was deeply disappointed. Secondly, stress. Not only is he disappointed, but now he has a dilemma on his hands, and he's wrestling through the right course of action. 
What's he going to do? What's the right thing to do? What is the best thing to do? He was stressed. He was very stressed. Now, normally under these circumstances, the path of action would be clear-cut. He would just simply divorce her, but obviously he could not commit to his life to a woman who had already been unfaithful as far as he was concerned, you know, that would do this even before they got married. But there's another problem, and, and it's Joseph's character. And it's his character and his godliness that makes this decision difficult. We're told in some translations that he was a righteous man or a, a man who was faithful to the law. And so it's important for us to understand what that means and why this is making this decision so stressful. Righteous doesn't mean that he was perfect. Righteous doesn't mean that he was without sin. It doesn't mean that he was holier than everybody else. It doesn't mean that he was a spiritual giant. That's not what that meant at all. It literally means to keep God's laws and commands, to be a, a person who's committed to doing what God has asked. And so Joseph lived his life by God's standards. And because he lived his life by God's standards, it shaped his character. And his character, in turn, shaped his actions. And in this case, his reactions. The normal reaction to this situation would be retaliation. You got to hurt her back. I mean, she hurts you. She lets you down. And so the hurt in you would say, well, I got to hurt you back. That would be the normal response, the retaliation. You got to make her pay. I got to humiliate her because she humiliated me. And so that would be the normal human reaction to this type of situation. But Joseph's godly character would not allow him to react with pure emotion, would not allow him to retaliate for the pain that she had caused him. And so while he had every right to be angry and to be hurt and disappointed, his character dictated kindness, not hurt, kindness. If he married her anyway and was kind in that way, despite her perceived infidelity, well, it would appear to everybody else that he was admitting that, well, he was the one responsible for the, for the pregnancy. The law made provision for an adulterer to be publicly stoned to death because that's how you know, important and how significant the act of adultery was in this culture that you could actually be killed for committing adultery. But our scripture says that he was unwilling, unwilling to disgrace her publicly. In other words, he was unwillingly, unwilling to take delight in her being punished and public humiliation. The law also provided a means for a private, quiet divorce that didn't involve public humiliation. And so because Joseph was kind, because he was a godly man, he decided that this was the appropriate route to go. It wasn't an easy choice. It was stressful. But at the end of the day, when he weighed out all of his options, he made the decision that the best course of action was to divorce her quietly and move on with his life. Thirdly, 
peace. Joseph had decided to do what made sense to him. What he felt was the right and honorable thing to do. But the truth be told, like most of us when we're in a situation, we're not privileged to having all of the information. And so neither did he. He didn't understand everything that was going on. He made this decision with the information that he had, but he didn't have all of the information. And so God, who was responsible for this whole situation, intervened in this by sending an angel, a messenger, to speak to Joseph in a dream. I just want to say here, I really wish that this is what God would do every week with me. This would make life so much easier. I mean, I know, this is, this is just like side note. This is free stuff, bonus material. I, I just, I don't know about you, but I just wish I didn't have to wrestle through that God just showed up with an angel and just said, you know, do this. Gotcha, let's do it. Joseph got the angel. And the angel told Joseph to not be afraid. Now, I believe the angel said those words, fear not or don't be afraid for two reasons. I mean, number one, clearly, like, if in the middle of the night you're woken up and there's an angel there to speak to you, chances are you'd, you'd be afraid. Probably another reason a lot of people have heart attacks in December. It's when angels tend to show up the most. I, I don't know. But clearly you would. You'd be afraid of that, right? I mean, that's, that, that's scary. But also, Joseph's decision to divorce Mary was also very connected to fear. And if you read the scripture, the fear is, is really connected to that. I mean, he was afraid of what others would think. He was afraid to trust Mary. He was afraid of Mary's potential fate if he made the wrong decision. He was afraid of the future because he couldn't see it anymore. It was, he didn't know what the future was anymore. The angel informed him that Mary was indeed telling the truth, that the child was a miracle of God and that Joseph was to stay with her and marry her and not be afraid of all those other things that were occupying his thoughts. The messenger of God said some things to help convince Joseph to stay with Mary, to, to help that decision along. He, he said, you know, he called him, first of all, he called him Joseph, but he called him Joseph, the son of David. Well, genealogy was very important to the Jews. Without genealogy, wouldn't, wouldn't be able to prove what was their rightful inheritance or their position within the family. It was genealogy that determined that. Matthew begins his gospel with the tracing of genealogy. Some of us find that difficult to kind of get going in the book of Matthew because we're bogged down in the begats at the beginning. But, but he starts there with the genealogy of Jesus because it's very, very important because it was prophesied that the Messiah would come through the lineage of David. And so the angel reminded Joseph that, hey, Joseph, who, by the way, is from the line of David, helping him see that, yes, you are a part of something far greater than you could have ever imagined. The angel said that the baby's name, next thing he said, would, would be Jesus, which means the salvation of God, the salvation of God, because this child would save his people from their sins. And so Joseph was very familiar with the prophecies regarding the coming salvation of Israel, the Messiah, 
And the angel here is connecting the dots that this child was indeed the long-awaited one. And so Matthew informs us that all of this took place to confirm the prophecy of Isaiah that a virgin would give birth and the child would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, when Joseph awoke, he immediately did as the angel commanded him, and he took Mary home to be his wife. His disappointment and his turmoil were turned to peace because now he understood that God was in control, that God was leading this, that God was working in this despite how everything appeared to him. So there are two things that I just want to focus on briefly as we conclude this morning. The first thing I want us to look at is, whoops, response. I believe it would be safe to say that all of us have, at some point in our lives, been deeply hurt, been deeply disappointed by the actions or the perceived actions of someone else. And when we experience that kind of hurt and disappointment, we are faced with a dilemma of grace. What should we do? What should we expect? How should the person responsible be held accountable, even punished for what they've done to us? And so we struggle in our response sometimes because, well, sometimes like, like many others, we, we want to make those who have hurt us pay for what they've done. We want them to pay. We don't want them to get away with this. You cause pain to me, I want to cause pain back to you. And so we struggle sometimes because of what others are going to even think of us in light of what's been done. And so it's not only are we, you know, are we struggling because of what's been done, but now there's the perception and what everybody else thinks about what's been done. And, and so we, we struggle with that and the embarrassment and potential embarrassment of that. We struggle because we want something to be made right that we're not sure can ever be made right. And our struggle with how to respond appropriately will most often create significant stress in our lives and rob us of peace. That's the reality. And so as followers of Jesus, how we respond to others who disappoint us, who let us down, who hurt us, who perhaps even betray us, is shaped and should be shaped by the grace that we have experienced in our own lives. Those who are recipients of God's grace should be more inclined to demonstrate God's grace to others than those who have not experienced God's grace. In fact, the Bible is actually very clear on that. The Bible tells us that, that do, those who do not forgive that the root of that lack of forgiveness, that inability to forgive others, can actually be traced back to the fact that we've not really experienced God's forgiveness in our lives like perhaps we thought we did. 
But those who are able to forgive, it's only because they themselves have experienced the incredible grace and forgiveness of God. Now, that doesn't mean that what we've experienced will hurt us less. It means that God's grace in our lives shapes us and shapes how we demonstrate grace to others. And so it's important to understand that by demonstrating grace, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't hold people accountable for, our, for their actions. That's not what we're talking about here. People do need to be confronted when they do wrong and when they hurt us and they need to repent and they need to say they're sorry and they need to, to change and own the wrongs that they've done. There's no question for that. I know a lot of people in 30-some years of pastoral ministry that can reach to the point where they, they, you know, they can move on from what they've done because they said a little prayer somewhere, but they don't do the hard work of seeking forgiveness and changing and admitting they're wrong. And i got to tell you, it's not finished if you stop there. It doesn't count if you stop there. All of it, the hard work has to be done. People need to understand when their actions damage relationships and trust and someone's future and inflicts pain. And it's important. But like Joseph, there is no peace that comes by doing the right thing, even though it doesn't change the fact that we've been disappointed and hurt. The peace, there's a peace that comes there's a peace that comes when we're able to do what is right, when we're able to step up and do what God is asking us to do. Our response is important. Yes, people must be held accountable, but like Joseph, we must reach a point in ourselves where we experience God's peace as well when people disappoint and hurt us and we respond out of grace and out of mercy. Secondly, reminder for most of us, I believe for most of us, life turns out different than we hoped, likely different than we planned or dreamed. But I want to remind us today that that doesn't mean that life is hopeless. Just because life hasn't arrived at a place that you thought it would have arrived at, at this point in your life, because things have gone different, it doesn't mean that life is hopeless. We have to be reminded on days like today when we read stories like this that God is the master of bringing good things out of what seems to be bad things. That's his, that's his specialty. And so God reminded Joseph that what appeared to be hopeless to Joseph was not hopeless at all. That God was going to redeem that. That God reminded Joseph that even though he had experienced deep pain and deep disappointment in his life, God was still very much at work in Joseph's life and he was in control even though everything in this moment seemed completely out of control. And so I believe that God wants to remind us of the same thing today as we look at this story afresh. Your life this morning may be filled with disappointment and pain. You may be a long way from where you set out to be. It may appear that, that it's completely hopeless, that there's, there's nowhere to turn and, and nowhere to go. 
But I believe God wants to remind us today that, that he has a plan for us. That his, that his plan is unfolding even though there are things that are painful and difficult in our lives. And even though things may appear hopeless, he still has a plan. Our lives are not hopeless because God is at work. And God is in control. And that's the chain, game changer right there. We don't have to be afraid of the future. We don't have to be afraid of the perception and the disappointment of others. We don't have to fear the changes or the circumstances that we're facing because God has a plan and he's in control and he's at work. Emmanuel is still Emmanuel. God is still with us. We are, we are never alone. And so as we look at this scripture today, we're reminded like Joseph, well, we have a choice to make. In the midst of our pain and our helplessness and our hopelessness and our disappointment, are we willing to trust God in those moments or not? Do we believe that our lives and our future is secure in him or not? Because peace that we all long for comes when we accept the fact that despite what's happening in us and around us, and to us, that God is still in control, bringing good out of those situations. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back this morning. Christmas has always been and will always be about finding peace in the midst of stress, in the midst of chaos in the midst of the disappointment. Peace is not the absence of those things. Peace can be experienced right in those things. And so, even though our circumstances plunge us into disappointment and despair, we find peace when we're reminded that God is in control. Would you stand with us this morning? The worship team is going to lead us and then we're going to participate in communion together this morning. No greater example of when things seem to be completely out of control, broken, hopeless, than celebrating the work accomplished on the cross of Jesus Christ. Harleen, would you lead us this morning?
His name is called Emmanuel. Amen. On the way in this morning, you would have received the communion elements. And as we hold these in our hands this morning, we are reminded of a time, a moment in time when everything seemed hopeless, when everything seemed out of control, when those who loved Jesus dearly stood at a distance with hearts broken, believing that it was all over. But little did they know as much as Jesus tried to help them understand that God was doing his best work during the time that seemed so hopeless. That God was in control even though it seemed like everything was out of control. And so we're reminded of that today as we hold these elements in our hands. You push the tab down with your thumb, this thin plastic will separate from the thicker plastic and if you pull that back, access the wafer and if you pull back the thicker plastic you'll access juice in 1st Corinthians chapter 11 verses 23 and 24 Paul wrote this he said for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself on the night when he was betrayed the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it, for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. Heavenly Father, we bow before you today, being reminded once again that in the midst of stress and disappointment, despair and chaos, it doesn't change you at all. It doesn't change that you're working. It doesn't change that you're redeeming. It doesn't change that you are with us. And we thank you for that. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice on the cross. Thank you that he rose again. That we celebrate on this day as we celebrate his birth, we also celebrate the life and eternal hope that we've been given. Father, today we pray for those who are unable to be with us. 
who need your touch today. We pray for Edith today and we ask, Lord, for your peace to surround her, for your strength and for your comfort, that you would lead and guide her, you would heal her body, you would strengthen her, and you would remind her that you are with her. Lord, today we pray for Richard and we pray, Lord, as he struggles with his health, would you touch him physically? And Lord, we know that sometimes ongoing sickness can have an emotional strain on us too. And we pray for every aspect of his life today, for your healing, your intervention. We pray today for Diana, who's struggling through cancer treatments. We pray for others that need your touch today, some of whom are not in this room because health doesn't permit, some who are here who are carrying burdens and difficulties. God, today we pray in your name that you would be our strength, our peace, and our comfort. You would intervene and do what only you can do. We ask this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Carlene's going to lead us for a moment, and then I want us to end with a prayer together as we exit this morning. You draw the hearts of shepherds, you draw the hearts of kings, even as a baby, you were changing everything, you called me to your kingdom, before your lips could speak, even as a baby, you were reaching out for me.
during the COVID season when we weren't able to gather and, and I was writing to you weekly, keeping you updated, trying to keep you connected, I, I stumbled across a, a blessing, a prayer that I would often include in the, um, in the writings that I would send out to you. And I would like to end with it this morning. It's the Northumbrian blessing. It says, may the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here today.